1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Christianity. I'm Hilary Kale, host of the channel, and today we're talking to Pamela Klassen, professor in the department for the study of religion at the University of Toronto, about her recent book, Spirits of Protestantism, Medicine, Healing, and liberal Christianity. Spirits of Protestantism was published with the University of California Press and won the 2012 American Academy of Religion Award for Analytical Descriptive Studies. It charts a transition in liberal Protestant self-understanding over the course of the 20th century, whereby supernatural liberalism, as Classen calls it, enabled an imaginative shift between Christianity Christianity science, and secularism. Liberal Protestants went from seeing themselves as Christians who combine medicine and evangelism to effect conversions to modernity amongst Native Americans and colonized people, to understanding themselves as complicit in an oftentimes racist imperialism. Yet nevertheless, they've always sought a universalized type of healing. In the process, Klassen shows us how liberal Protestants have exerted a major influence in public life, including The Shaping of Anthropology of Religion. We welcome her here today. Pamela Klassen is professor in the Department for the Study of Religion at the University of Toronto, as well as director of Religion in the Public Sphere, an interdisciplinary initiative at the U of T. Her research is in conversation with religious studies, anthropology of religion, feminist and gender theory, and North American religious history. She's the author of numerous articles and books, Her most recent monograph, Spirits of Protestantism, Medicine, Healing, and Liberal Christianity, won the 2012 American Academy of Religion Award of Excellence for Analytical and Descriptive Studies. It charts a transition in liberal Protestant self-understandings over the course of the 20th century, whereby supernatural liberalism, as Klassen calls it, enabled an imaginative shift between Christianity, science, and secularism. This is the book that we are going to talk to her about today. So without further ado, thank you, Pamela, for being with us here. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start with a rather broad question. How did you come to this profession and to the kinds of subjects that you work on today?
0: Oh, um, well, I started out in uh, my undergraduate in political theory and uh, I found it very exciting, very stimulating. I had fabulous professors, including Charles Taylor and uh, James Tully, who are both very interesting political theorists. Um, but I always found it a little bit too abstract for me and always wanted to do things that, that were a little more tied to everyday life. Uh, and especially at that time, I was very interested in uh, women's studies and feminist theory which those two professors were very supportive, I have to say. Uh, So I ended up uh, traveling around the world a little bit and went to a Buddhist monastery, did various things uh, uh, in in Thailand, and then ended up um, in a very, very boring job in the government and decided I was going to go crazy if I didn't uh, go back to school and ended up in a religion and culture program uh, at Wilfrid Laurier University, which is in Canada. And then... uh, I hadn't really thought I was going to do a PhD, and had a fabulous professor um, say to me, "Why don't you do a PhD?" And I said, "Okay." And then I went on. So you never know. As a teacher, I've always remembered that because you never know what things you say to your students, which things are going to actually, you know, make a difference in their lives. And to have actually to have someone say to me. Um, you could do a PhD was uh, something I hadn't really really thought about. Uh, so I went on to Drew University, where I studied with uh, Karen McCarthy Brown uh, in the anthropology of religion program, and uh, that just after that, I uh, I never looked back and just wanted to uh, continue thinking about religion in a very interdisciplinary uh, compass and also uh, as a as a at a theoretical level, as a concept, but as a concept that has, that is this created, that is manufactured, that is a part of an intellectual discourse and has a particular history, religion, per se. There isn't this thing out there that we, we can find, uh, in the name of religion. But we can see that religion is, is at play in a lot of different ways, um, in, uh, in the world around us, and sometimes very explicitly, and sometimes in ways that we need to do a little more teasing out of.
1: Okay. <laughs> What drew you? It's uh, not—it's not a given that someone studying in an anthropology of religion program would steer towards liberal Protestants in North America, (laughs) uh, to say the least. What what drew you to that subject?
0: Um, Well, yeah, it was definitely uh, uh, unusual. Um, My advisor, Karen Brown, studied Haitian Voodoo, which and did you know wrote a beautiful book called Mama Lola, which is uh, much more in keeping with what an anthropologist of religion might do. My, my dissertation work was actually on the home birth movement, so the home childbirth movement in the United States. Uh, and this was the book after my, um, my dissertation book that was called Blessed Events, uh, and that the, the childbirth work, work got me thinking about um, medicine and healing uh, in contemporary North America and its relationship to, to religion. So I decided I was going to I I'd gotten a job at the University of Toronto. I had small children. So I wanted to do a project that was could, that I could do reasonably close to home. So I was going to do a comparative project that, that compared for sort of charismatic uh, Christian and um, sort of. Mainstream Protestant approaches to healing, and then when I started going to some of these churches and actually participating in some of the the healing practices that were going on there, like a yoga class in a in a church sanctuary or healing touch um, uh, therapeutic touch workshops in in mainstream Protestant churches, I realized that I, I needed to think about this much more historically because there I was you know in a church sanctuary with the the stained glass windows and everything and lying there, um, having, uh, doing yoga, um, with a, uh, a practitioner who was also the, um, at that point, the, the, the wife of the, of the cleric in the particular church I was in, and I thought, okay, if I, were, if I were 100 years ago and I was lying here doing or, or doing the downward dog in this uh, <laughs> in this um, church, they would be kicking me out and <laughs> screaming heretics. So there's a history that, that's seen uh, what people actually do with their bodies in this space change, and that became what was interesting to me.
1: That sounds quite nice, I must say, doing downward dog. In, in a beautiful church sanctuary, I do yoga in the Concordia undergraduate gym. Not not nearly as inspiring, I think. Right.
0: The only problem is a lot of these older churches are very chilly. Mm-hmm. So this uh, yoga instructor was very kind. It had special blankets that she would lay on you at the end of the, in the resting period, my favorite period of yoga. <laughs> That's right. And uh, yeah.
1: So what are the main questions then that this book is, is interrogating, seeking to answer?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess one of the ways to to go at that is, is thinking about different understandings within Protestantism uh, about how the spiritual is uh, embodied and how um, in, in many Protestant understandings of, of healing uh, you have, what I what I decided were sort of two, or what I came up to came to see as two different understandings of how the spirit enters the body in a way that might be considered healing. Um, now, my book is very focused on, on Canadian contexts, and I'm focused in particular on the United Church, um, which is a, a, a church that gets founded in, the 19, in 1925 with a mixture of Methodist, Presbyterian, and some other um, Protestant groups. And I follow primarily the Methodist line backwards. And then the Anglican Church or the Church of England um, is the other group that I look at. So it's sort of comparative between those two groups. Um, And you can see, especially within the Anglican Church, that over the course of the 20th century, there's a, um, in some ways in the United Church as well, there's a tension between those people who think that, that God works through spiritual intervention by coming into your body, literally, spiritually, and healing it. Whereas there's a, another an, opposed to another trend that understands the spirit working through what I call spiritual equilibrium. So it was the, your responsibility as a Christian to cultivate a certain equilibrium in your life where you had, you know, you were thinking in the right way. You were, um, um, participating in the right you're taking care of your body in the right way and you're also taking care of your spiritual self so they they really speak a lot about this equilibrium between mind body and spirit and this spiritual equilibrium version was much more comfortable with with developing um, intersections between Christianity and psychiatry Christianity and, and psychology and a kind of psychiatric spirituality whereas the spiritual intervention folks much more interested in developing, um, uh, movements within Christianity in North America that saw sort of faith healing or, um, sort of divine healing as something that you could pray for as opposed
1: to sort of, um,
0: so, sometimes in, in quite a lot of tension with medicine,
1: um, but other times not. <laughs> Yeah, and certainly the book really helps us understand the diversity of liberal Protestantism, Mm -hmm. um, but also the way that it is actually practiced. I mean, you're really taking liberal Protestantism seriously here as a subject of inquiry rather than as, for example, a trope uh, for a therapeutic culture, for example, um, or for the loss of a, a sort of imagined Orthodox Christianity. Can you tell me something about the work on liberal Protestantism that um, you were reading and finding helpful as you were writing this book, or maybe not so helpful? Mm-hmm. Sure.
0: I think uh, there's a lot of great work on on liberal Protestantism that has been more in a sort of church history mold, which um, has focused a lot on, on leaders. This is a caricature because there are other you know examples that could could um, you know, give you a different perspective, but a lot of it has been a kind of, uh, church history mold that looks at, uh, the leaders in particular denominations, the debates within the denomination, the ways that Methodists, uh, might've, um, you know, had, uh, disputes with Presbyterians or Anglicans or Episcopalians in the, in, in the U S context. Um, And less on what I guess some have called more of a a lived religion approach. So I think some of the models that I took in writing this book would have been um, work of someone like Robert Orsi uh, in his work on Thank You, St. Jude, on women and and medicine and the Catholic Church. um, In terms of uh, where, where he's really trying to figure out how people lay people grapple with church authority, but also medical authority at the same time as they figure out how to deal with some major struggles in their lives. So I was interested in in, in that kind of the practice aspect of, um, of liberal Protestantism. Um, but I also was interested in sort of the politics of it as well. And so a lot of, um, if you look at the early 20th century, the main engagements with medicine uh, from liberal Christianity are that in some ways, they're founding the medical system, right? So in the, light, in the late 19th, early 20th century, a lot of the uh, medical schools and nursing schools that get founded are founded through Christian colleges in the Canadian context and in the American context. Um, and they're the ones who are sending out medical missionaries. Uh, the wi- When women get trained as doctors and nurses uh, in medical schools in Canada and the U.S., it's harder for them to get work here. They go out in droves as medical missionaries, um, largely in the early 20th century to China and India. Um, And so thinking about what how medical missions uh, were part of how uh, Protestants understood um, their role as this combined colonial project of civilizing and healing at the same time was part of what interested me. But then what else? Since I was looking at, since I wanted to extend the narrative to the end of the century, the question then became, so these Protestants who in the early 20th century thought they needed to convert the Hindus uh, because they were pagan or whatever, uh, how did they come to be doing the downward dog in their sanctuaries in the late 20th century? So it became a question that, that also um, became an investigation also changing ideas about colonialism and then also changing uh, Protestants especially sometimes even the missionaries themselves start questioning that uh, Christian triumphalism and that Christian but the idea that, that these Canadian Christians were supposed to be changing these other cultures uh, in in any way so it's that process of a kind of um, the critique that these medical missionaries receive in the countries that they're supposedly converting, but also their own sort of self critique that becomes interesting to me.
1: So you follow the, the history throughout the 20th century, um, and you really paint a picture of a very complicated period from the 1950s to the 1970s that you just alluded to. Mm-hmm. Um, liberal Protestants are contending with the charismatic renewal, with utilizing mm-hmm. psychology, and they're also swept up in the sexual revolution. What are some of the movements that liberal Protestants adapt and adopt in that key transitional period? Mm-hmm. Um,
0: well, yeah, that... That chapter was really uh, exciting for me. Uh, One of the main sources that I use uh, as a way into this question, because... well, for a number of different reasons, but I, one of the main sources that I use are, are newspapers. So I looked, thanks to some fabulous research assistants, um, I looked through uh, every issue of uh, the United Church newspapers. They change over time. First, the Christ- Christian Guardian, which was the Methodist Church newspaper, and then the United Church newspapers, and the um, Canadian Churchman, which was the Anglican uh, newspaper, And one day, there it was, in, I forget the date now, early uh, 1960s, mid-1960s, there's this fabulous article in the United Church um, newspaper, uh, I think by then it was The Observer, um, in which there's this great uh, article by a... Um, United Church minister about um, homosexuality in Canadian culture, and he makes all kinds of uh, great, <laughs> what, what we would now consider to be very um, precocious arguments about how the state should recognize same-sex marriage, uh, about how the the medical um, path patholo- oh, I can't even say that word patholo- pathologizing patholo- pathology pathologizing uh, whatever pathologizing okay pathologizing yeah. <laughs> um are you able to edit these things
1: yeah yeah we are okay. excellent I had
0: a lot of uh, trouble with pathologizing that pathologizing <laughs> homosexuality as um something that's you know um Pathological uh, a sickness uh, is something that needs to be contended from within Christian Christian and Christians are the people who can can do this uh, kind of um, challenge uh, of of the uh, of understanding somehow homosexuality as deviant. So that was really not uh, what I expected to see. This was a, a guy named Mervyn Dickinson, and the the picture in the United Church Observer from 1965 is is of him interviewing men at a gay bar in Toronto. So, uh, that was particularly interesting to me. And that really does come out of a kind of tradition of what, uh, Protestants call pastoral counseling, uh, which was a really, uh, long-term, um, intersection between, uh, pro- Protestant theology and, um, psychoanalysis, psychotherapy. Um, a lot of this is going on, um, in New York City, in Boston, in Toronto, in the 1960s, at Protestant uh, seminaries as well, and people like Paul Tillich are, are part of this this intersection between psychotherapy and uh, and Christianity. And this Mervin Dickson, Dickinson just takes it in this very interesting uh, direction. He was himself a pastoral counselor uh, in Toronto.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you talk a fair amount, you've alluded to it already, about liberal Protestants' interactions in the earlier part of the 20th century with both Native Americans and with colonized people, especially in India, China. Um, It has a major impact on the story that you tell. Can you delve into that relationship a little bit more and how it changes? Sure.
0: So... Very briefly, one line that you could follow on this score is the whole question of Christian yoga, right? So while we might think of uh, yoga as something that comes relatively late, you know, post 1960s to North America, um, we can see a longer tradition of, of Christian yoga. Um, there's a whole interesting Catholic tradition of it, but there's also an interesting Protestant tradition of it um, in the 1920s, uh, in which some Indian converts to Christianity uh, argue that yoga and Christianity are go very well together. Uh, and yoga is a practice. It's a bodily practice that can help one, you know, attune oneself better to, uh, to God, even a Christian God. Uh, and some of the Anglican missionaries uh, who are in India are starting to do things like live on ashrams and participate in these, these, in, in what they consider to be these new practices of, of Christian yoga. And they see yoga as a remedy to all kinds of different things. Western materialism, the Western uh, mind body split that is, you know, too problematic, mm. um, and a Christianity that is, that has gotten itself too much into its head, right? It needs to be more embodied. So already in the 1920s, you have um, people uh, um, making these kinds of arguments. And what but they're also making it in conversation with Indian converts, some of whom are actually uh, working as part of the anti-colonial movement in India as well. So it was when I realized that three of the Protestants that I was looking at, um, a woman named Belle Oliver, um, an English, uh, Anglican, uh, writer, Percy Deermer, uh, and, um, this fellow who develops Christian yoga who I'm going to have to look up, whose name I'm forgetting, uh, they'd all met with Gandhi at one point. Uh, and I re- realized, huh, there's something going on here that I need to trace a, a little better. So they're part while they're still Christian missionaries, they, they can still see themselves as part of, or Christian converts, as part of the anti-colonial movement. Um, the context of indigenous communities and First Nations communities in Canada is, is a very... Uh, Maybe not more complicated, but but very complicated, um, and we can see uh, again. Since since this is a, a project that I sort of came to thinking about the late 20th century context first, the dominant way that the word healing is used. Uh, at least, yeah, among the United Church and Anglican Church in the late, late 20th century is used in relation, was, it was used in relation to uh, Indigenous issues. Um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of the early 21st century in Canada is a, as a commission, uh, that was designed to, um, give space for, uh, indigenous people to talk about their experiences in church residential schools, which included United Church and uh, Anglican church schools and with words like healing and reconciliation at, at the um, named as as some of the the main goals of this kind of process. so they are clearly healing then both the both churches set up a healing fund um, f- as a way to in some in some way, uh, atone for their participation in uh, colonialism and the destruction of uh, First Nations cultures, languages, families in the early 20th century. Um, so clearly, there healing has to carry a very heavy burden. And I was particularly interested in, in thinking about about how that came to be, um, and then considering what it, what kind of, what what these same groups thought healing. Consisted of in the early 20th century, and they're really quite different.
1: Yeah, and that's a great example because it also gets at this nexus between bodily healing, psychological healing, we might say, mm-hmm. um, Christian healing, and also politics, right? Which which mm-hmm. really runs throughout the the book that complicated intersection. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, just in my as in my earlier work, I found childbirth was a profoundly political uh, topic, even though not everybody would would. Uh, would necessarily understand that without having lived through making choices about one's one's childbirth practices. Um, similarly, uh, in this case, the the debates around uh, faith healing and the role of uh, of medicine and medical authority within Christian contexts is deeply political and deeply fraught. So much so that you know, in the early uh, in the nineteen twenties, I mean, there's there's always these waves of of conflict that develop at different times between the people who are more sort of anti-medical faith healers and the people who want to see Christianity medicine sort of hand in hand. Um, and in the 1920s, you can see this um, happening at various kinds of healing revivals in Toronto and Vancouver, Victoria throughout um, Canada and the uh, mainstream Protestant ministers gathered together Uh, with medical doctors and lawyers uh, to investigate what they consider to be the fraudulent practices of these healing revivalists. So you see a real kind of um, unity around uh, among the the mainstream Protestants and the medical um, establishment uh, in the, the first two or three decades um, of the 20th century, so much so that right after one of the more controversial uh, faith healers comes through town uh, in Toronto, um, the next issue of the um, of the United Church newspaper starts having a regular column written by a doctor who is going to tell you about you know how to get enough fresh air for your children or what what foods to feed your children or so that I mean you can imagine not many church newspapers these days have regular columns by by doctors um, or public health advocates within them although you know you know. It's not impossible, but it, it was clearly uh, uh, understood as a very natural kind of
1: um, alliance, right? A kind of Doctor Oz for mm-hmm. uh, for the nineteen right. twenties. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this brings us to this um, this idea of supernaturalism that that mm-hmm. comes up in the book, and and you, you talk about how liberal um, Protestants are trying to find a kind of supernaturalism that that. Um, is neither atheistic materialism but nor is it this kind of uh, the Pentecostal miracle working um, or faith healing that you've just been talking about. Can you tell us a little more about this concept of, of supernatural liberalism as you as you talk about in the book?
0: right um, yeah I mean I think you defined it very well right there uh, in terms of what I what I mean by it um, It's this uh, what in retrospect may seem like a kind of awkward, Grappling uh, on the part of Protestants of all sorts, like, you know, um, um, theological leaders, church leaders, um, uh, even some Protestant uh, medical missionaries or, or doctors who are are trying are still saying, yeah, God has a role in healing the body, but we cannot abandon science and medicine, um, in favor of putting all of our faith in God. And so this of course becomes potentially very, uh, um, provocative statement to some Christians who would say, of course you have to put all of your faith in God. Um, and as, and especially as a, a variety of, of um, what we might loosely call anti-medical movements are developing in the early 20th century. So Pentecostalism, Christian science. The Anglicans are particularly concerned to uh, ward off uh, the growth of Christian science, which was a um, a movement that uh, was... What, very much uh, rooted in, in thinking that, well, the fundamental idea is that matter is error; that our bodies do not exist, and we just need to sort of align ourselves um, more purely uh, in a more intentional way um, with with God, uh, and then we will have no illness. We'll have no. Uh, we will. We will not be in, in need of healing. Um, so much so that to to um, really show. Have true faith as a Christian Scientists, one was not to turn to doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, so this becomes a, a very, uh, a very um, antagonistic relationship between uh, mainstream Protest- Protestants and Christian Science because Christian Science Pentecostalism, you know, stole people from you know, the United Church, maybe not the United Church, the Methodists for sure. Um, And uh, definitely makes incursions into the Anglican Church. Um, Christian scientists stole another, a different group, um, often a lot of women who were sort of the, um, the ones doing most of the work in local churches, so these are both seen as sort of threats to mainstream Protestants in the early um, 20th century. Um, so they need to come up with a way that they're they're supernatural at the same time that they're part of this wider liberal um, discourse in the United in the United States and Canada um, that uh, understands where they in which they understand themselves as part of a, a reasoning, rational kind of public sphere that they, and they are, they're contributors to this, this wider liberal sphere, which would include medical doctors and psychiatrists and, um, people with other kinds of, um, you know, professional uh, authority. So it's, it's trying to walk a line between the spirit and science, I guess you could say, um, uh, while at, while not fully giving oneself over to either uh, side.
1: Yeah. And maybe one way also to to clarify this for our readers, and this was one of the things that fascinated me about your book was um, the role of new technologies as well. So liberals Mm -hmm. are mobilizing all sorts of technologies in their quest for healing, both bodily and therapeutic. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can talk a bit about some of those techniques or technologies that uh, most grabbed your attention as you were researching the book. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, the favorite um, example, my favorite example of that is an Anglican Archbishop. Uh, He eventually becomes an Archbishop whose name was Frederick DuVernay. And actually he fascinated me so much that now I'm writing a whole book about him. (laughs) um, He uh, is a fascinating character because he's um, born in Montreal, uh, works in Toronto for a while, does most of his his, um, schooling at Wycliffe College, an evangelical Anglican college, gets posted out Uh, in northwestern British Columbia around Prince Rupert, what's now Prince Rupert, in 1904. And then lives mostly among uh, indigenous peoples, Niska, Tsimshun, um, for the most part, uh, and then some some white settlers uh, and other missionaries. Uh, And... um, by the, near the end of his life, he dies in 1924, but in the 19, uh, 1920s, he starts turning his entire attention to a new theology that he calls spiritual radio or radio mind. And he had long been interested in, um, psychic research. So, you know, a very, he considers himself a scientist, a psychologist, um, you know, a scientific approach to the mind and the spirit, right? What, how does the mind work and and what role for him? What role does God play in in our um, our human um, mind body complex? He wouldn't put it that way, but that, that's that's basically what he was after. So he comes up with this idea that radio waves um, are sort of coursing through the air, and we can draw them down, um, and they are actually contain divine energy in them. God has sent them out for us, and we can heal each other through telepathic means and and various kinds of. Uh, of other um, sort of intentional sort of prayer-like um, processes. He's not the only one who's coming up with this. There, Percy Dearmer uh, in the UK is also um, talking in this way. William James, has, he even has a certain amount of it in some of his, his writing. Um, so it's, he's definitely a sort of man of, of his of his moment, but he's also, I would argue, very much uh, influenced by what he's seeing going on around him uh, among um, the First Nations groups that he um, he's around a lot a lot of the time, in which spiritually traveling energies that can heal one uh, are are constantly being not constantly but are being passed between people um, in in ways that he wouldn't necessarily recognize as as christian ways but are certainly going on so his sort of technological uh supernaturalism is is a mix i would say of thinking about new technologies because radios had been invented then but were not all that common in people's homes um and uh and being an observer of the indigenous um, approaches to healing that were around him as well, as well as being an avid reader of psychic research.
1: So we've been we've been talking a little while now. It seems like a good moment to bring up love, yeah. <laughs> uh, the most mysterious of currents, you call it. And for liberal Protestants, it's really a force that stretches across oceans and unites. I mean, it's, it's this current. Mm-hmm. Tell us about tell us about love. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, it comes down to this as sort of the, I mean, for lack of a better word, the heart of, uh, of what these Protestants think their religion is all about. And this is something that we, you know, we hear more about in terms of evangelical Protestants these days, right? You know, I have a heart for this, or I have a heart for the poor of Africa, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, these, I would say, uh, if we're looking early, um, if we're looking early in uh, the 20th century, Protestant missionaries understood... I mean, love was their modus operandi. Uh, it was their argument for why they did what they did. Um, but as we all know, um, many things can be done in the name of love, and they're not all things that we want um, done to us. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was the case in, in some contexts where um, Protestant missions were, understood themselves as sort of vessels for the love of christ but they were also vessels for imperialism and colonialism at the same time um that said i do think i think what interests me about especially these earlier figures these missionaries is that they they really did believe that what they were doing was a way of transferring their care for the other uh in into the world and we can um you know, with hindsight, we can see the, the deep problems with this approach. But then it, I think it gives us pause to, to think about, um, to think perhaps a, a little bit with a little less um, retrospective judgment uh, and understand and try and understand how they had a certain kind of effective or emotional commitment to what they were doing. Um, but then also think critically about how, you know. Although we think of love as this, uh, you know, a positive force in the world, we also might want to pause and think about how, um, well, to think about a different context. Um, uh, the book by, um, Louise Erdrich, Love Medicine, definitely, uh, that, that book and its title, Love Medicine, um, really points to the way that, uh, love as a current active in the world May have some very positive outcomes, and it may also have some extremely destructive ones at the
1: same time. Does that answer yeah. your question? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, then, maybe, you- maybe, sorry if oh, sorry, I can just ahead. bring it back to the that question
0: of, of homosexuality, though, as well. Mm-hmm. To, I mean, I think there we see a situation in which um, really sort of. Um, Protestant, some Protestants were seeing uh, how their um, understandings of what was pathology and what was perversion um, were distinctly unloving, and were actually keeping people from being in what what would be considered very positive, loving relationships. And it's pretty, ama- in my view, it's pretty amazing that they um, came to these uh, perspectives in uh, in the mid '60s, even before the Stonewall riots uh, were taking place. So I think there is something. Really powerful to to be thinking about love, uh, not as something that um, is just sort of hyped up in one part of one's life, but that is is a. Is a current that you can you can trace in in a lot of different uh, sorts of places,
1: and relationships, right. right? And that you can recognize both, as you said, I mean, in the context of pathologizing homosexuality, or also with the residential school system, oh. that actually the what was considered love for another was actually keeping people from being in loving relationships, as it exactly. became understood by the late twentieth century. So, so for those in our audience who haven't yet read *Spirits of Protestantism*, um, as, as is clear from what Pamela's been telling us, she did a lot of you did a lot of archival work, but also four years of um, ethnographic work with communities with liberal Protestantism. Protestants today in North America. So it really brings us right back um, up to the present with all these different new types of healing, right? We talked about uh, yoga a little bit. There's also Reiki that makes an appearance in the book as well. Um, And can you tell us a little about how these kinds of healings then play into liberal Protestant ideas of a religious universalism or these kinds of questions about love that we've been talking about? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So I guess it's kind of the flip side. If you have the the early part of the century where, you know, Christianity is the only way um, to get to salvation and love and whatever, and healing for, uh, or mainstream Protestants, by the end of the century, there's just, there are so many different ways that one can, one can get there. Um, and that includes, you know, uh, a kind of cosmic universalism that, you know, you could have, uh, different kinds of arguments with, but, uh, that, that understand yoga or Reiki, which is a kind of, it has a very interesting history in and of itself, which one of my students, um, Justin Stein is investigating. Uh, which is a kind of healing touch um, and in which it's understood that the, the practitioner is just sort of channeling the energy of the universe through his or her body into the body of the person who's receiving the treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I met many people who were Re- Reiki practitioners, but who were also members of, of um, Anglican or United Churches. Um, and then there were also parish nurses who were uh, – it's a sort of a very interesting development in the context of not just mainstream Protestantism there Catholic um, parish nurses and, and others evangelical ones of various stripes um, but it's basically a kind of a Christian diagnosis of, of medicine that understands it as having lost the spiritual altogether uh, and so they came up with this idea of parish nurses which are ba- who are basically for the most part women um, nurses who work in uh churches um and are sometimes paid by the churches it's a very precarious model of Mm. employment um but uh who um can't they've they're now accredited in a a, and it's through a certain they have their own accreditation process they can't do things that um many of the medical um um Techniques that nurses might be licensed to do, but you know, they can take your blood pressure. They can advise you on, you know, risk around diabetes and that kind of thing. They can change your bandages for you, but they can also do guided meditations with you, do labyrinth walks, do um, Reiki if they're um, a Reiki practitioner uh, and other kinds of therapeutic touch. So They've become this kind of figure that brings together in, in yet another new synthesis medical uh, expertise and sort of spiritual expertise um, in very particular settings. So I, I would say that part of what my book argues is that this is this constant process of of Christians saying, we've lost the healing powers that were part of early Christianity. We've lost Jesus's attention to the whole person. uh, And we need to, you know, go back and reclaim that power and make it new for for the 19th century, the early 20th century, the mid 20th century, 2014. It's a constant process of reinvention um, that happens at this nexus of medicine and Christianity.
1: So there are a number of audiences that this kind of work would reach. I mean, um, maybe most explicitly historians of North America, also anthropologists of religion. But as you've been talking, um, I mean, of course, postcolonial theorists as well, folks who are interested in the history of medicine. Um, what sorts of audiences did you actually have in mind as you were writing this book?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um I think when I first started writing it, I was really understanding it as a book that I was I was writing for um, people working in religion in North America, the history of religion in North America. Partly because there's a lot of uh, easy critique of liberal Protestants from more conservative um, spheres that see them as sort of wishy washy, you know, going with the flow kind of. Uh, um, Uh, lame christians (laughs) What, um, what some pentecostal uh critics um called um sad christians christians who just really didn't know lost all touch with the spirit right and were just you know boring old bland uh protest liberal protestants and you see this among some anthropologists as well right they're writing about um uh anthropologists of christianity writing about liberal protestants as if they're they're just so boring why would one ever want to study them
1: right they're um, so adaptive to culture so, that they just are ciphers for the culture exactly than, yeah.
0: right and i think there's actually a little more uh resistance going on there that's that's interesting to look at and there's also um there's a, I mean, there's a lot that's gone on in the, the name of liberal Protestantism that is definitely part of a wider cultural critique, but is also not something that, um, I mean, interestingly, a lot of the, uh, in the 1960s, anthropologists of religion, many of them, uh, write some very interesting things about liberal Protestantism as, uh, what it is, as a, as a religious movement in their, Minds that can, um, that is actually one to be, uh, to be respected in a certain way. Um, and so part of what my, uh, what my book became by the, so while at the beginning I was writing more for these people in North American English history, by the end I was really writing for anthropologists of religion and then anybody else who might find some of my stories interesting. Um, but, uh, people in anthropology of religion, partly because, uh, there is, it's, there's a lot of quick critique of the liberal, uh, and I wanted to make it a little more complicated and messy and say, well, what do we really mean when we call someone liberal? And specific, more specifically, what do we mean when we call someone a liberal Protestant? And do we really know what they are? I mean, the, the trope of liberalism is that it's a kind of individualistic um, uh, kind of um, ideology in which the, the individual is privileged around any other kind of social unit uh, and it's very, you know, western and very very Protestant uh, and that somehow Protestantism is encapsulated by by a kind of um, focus on belief and on the, the inner self and that it's, again, also a very individualistic model um, but if you start looking at liberal Protestants, like some of them were the most Avid uh, defenders of social justice, of unions, of um, socialized medicine—in this case—and uh, of uh, an understanding that medicine is actually a tool that uh, and and a, a human right in a way that everybody uh, should have access to. And so, for this very individualized. Supposedly individualized movement, uh, it's had a lot of, especially in the Canadian case, it had a large role in developing uh, the system of uh, socialized, well, uh, state-funded healthcare that we now have.
1: Yeah, and, and your your critique is even more pointed than that when it comes to anthropology, because you know you point out these figures, for example, like Margaret Mead, who are obviously mm-hmm. eminent anthropologists, they're also writing for liberal Protestant uh, journals. And as you, you, you have this great phrase, um, I'm saying your, your words back to you, but that, mm-hmm. that anthropologists and liberal Protestants are in this kind of awkward kinship together where, you know, in some ways, liberal Protestants don't form the subject of inquiry for anthropologists because 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 they come out of the same institutions and profess many of the same ideas. So there's actually a very awkward kinship there indeed.
0: Yeah. And especially they come out of the same uh, sort of historical trajectory of becoming aware of their, uh, of how they are implicated in colonial history, right? How they are implicated in colonialism at the same time that they want to be, want to understand themselves as fighting against it. So those missionaries who, you know, were, full-on Christian civilization types at the beginning of the century, by the mid-century, they're questioning colonialism, some of the very same people, um, and because uh, they were really young <laughs> when they were first uh, Christian civilizers. And they're, they're questioning um, Christian triumphalism. Uh, someone like Sherwood Eddy is a really interesting um, case in point here. Um, and at the same time that anthropologists are saying, oh, look, We uh, were part of a colonial project, and now we need to shift gears and understand and and actually start questioning colonialism. So they really are part of that same kind of uh, dynamic, um, which was a dynamic that was often foisted upon them by the people they were studying in the case of anthropologists and the people who they had converted in the case of uh, missionaries, um, especially in the context of the Indian uh,
1: church. Yeah. So, so, your current project, as you said i mean you 're following up on devernay you 're working on this intersection of Christianity and First Nations, First Nations people, colonialism, and the making of Canada. It sounds like some of the ideas that you explored in spirits of Protestantism are also driving this new project what are What are some of the questions that you 're asking there
0: yeah definitely there's a there 's a you can see a uh, relation between the two books, and one of the main ones being uh, Duvernay. I, in this book, um, I'm still debating the title, but I think the the, the subtitle is uh, "Missionaries and Media on Indian Land," and it actually follows Duvernay's journey from Toronto to the Rainy River Ojibwe um, in uh, on the Rainy River in the boundary between Minnesota and Ontario, um, almost in Manitoba. Uh, and then he goes, he's sort of a missionary journalist at that point. Uh, and then he goes to uh, uh, Northwestern British Columbia. And each chapter focuses on a different medium, literally. So the first chapter is on photography and looks at his uh, trip to the Rainy River and how his desire to take photographs of the Ojibwe. Um, both put him into closer relationship with some and, uh, give an opportunity to, uh, Ojibwe older women in particular to, and, and some men to reject his, his visit and to reject the process of why he's there, literally in, in, uh, not allowing him to take photographs of them. So his interaction with them, the way photography prompts certain kinds of interactions or what some people call the, the photographic event is what I'm interested in that chapter. And then there's a chapter on the printing press. Missionaries loved to bring printing presses to uh, um, their missions and then the printing presses get used to, for all kinds of different reasons by the people who are actually living there. Uh, in this case, the Niska. Um, and then there's a chapter on maps. And missionaries. And then of course a last chapter on radio, where I get to think a little bit more about radio mind and spiritual radio and psychic research uh,
1: in DuGrenet's life. Super. So given that we've just been talking about media and this interview is the official launch of the New Books Network online podcast on Christianity. Seems only appropriate to end by noting that this year, if I am right, Mm -hmm. we're teaching a full year course at the University of Toronto called The Internet, colon, Saving Civilization or Trashing the Planet. So, which is it? (laughs) what are are we contributing to well it depends on which week we're talking about i'm actually um, (laughs) teaching it with a computer scientist and an
0: environmental scientist so it's a it's a fabulous course to teach i think the students are largely feeling like we are rather dystopian when it comes to thinking about the internet but actually this week i'm having two visitors come to class uh who are part of the first story app which is a fabulous app mm. everybody should download it um where you can actually it's a toronto-based app on uh, indigenous history in toronto and you can walk around with your phone and figure out um where where various uh, significance of significant events in first nations history uh, took place in um, the toronto context so it's a whole under under story uh to the city of toronto that most people uh, don't really know about Um, so in this week's lecture I would say the internet is uh, a force for good uh, but certainly it is a very very complicated beast
1: for sure but of course this podcast is (laughs) is contributing to saving civilization there we go (laughs) thanks so much for being here with us thank you bye Pamela bye bye (laughs)